Hello, and welcome to the Open Data Institute podcast. I'm Fitn O'Donnell, Senior Data Technologist at the ODI. As part of our Data Ecosystems Innovation Program, we've been looking at how we can use data to measure the recovery from COVID in the UK. We often see headlines in the news about how GDP is down or inflation is up or CO2 emissions are rising. But what's often not asked is, how are these numbers created? Where does that data come from? What are the like ecosystems or flows of data that make these measurements possible? And more importantly, how can we improve the flows of data so that we get a better sense of what is going on and ultimately make better decisions in the country? Um, in the first part, we looked at the Office of National Statistics and how they use data from new or alternative sources to get a more real-time view of the UK economy. Next, we looked at data to measure net zero targets, particularly on greenhouse gas emissions and potential sites for carbon capture. Um, so these two strands, they're different types of recovery, one obviously economic, the other is environmental. But what about other types of recovery? What about uh, the social or health, education? Those other factors that are really important in people's lives. Um, can we bring them those together? Can we bring the data from the, all those together in some way? And so this is on the topic of measuring what's known as national well-being to move beyond purely focusing on specific metrics like GDP and to see progress in a country in a much broader sense. Now, um, researching this topic, I find there's a, there's a lot of metrics out there in this field of um, well-being. There's the Human Development Index, the Genuine Progress Indicator, the Better Life Index, and the ONS itself has the um, National Well-Being Dashboard. And so to make sense of this and to learn more in well-being, and particularly to understand how better data can help in the UK context, and we spoke to two experts on the topic, the first being Jennifer Wallace. Hi, great. So Jennifer Wallace, I'm one of the directors at Carnegie UK Trust. Uh, Carnegie is an uh, independent organisation that was set up over 100 years ago to improve the well-being of the people. Um, I've been there for about 10 years um, and uh, working on concepts of well-being, measurement of well-being and how you put well-being into practice as a way of thinking about what governments are trying to achieve and really delighted to be able to talk to you about some of that work on this podcast. And the other is Nancy Hay. Hi, I'm Nancy Hay. I'm the Executive Director at the What Works Centre for Wellbeing. Um, we are the UK's national body for wellbeing evidence, policy and practice. And we're doing what it says on the tin. So we're trying to understand what organisations in all sectors, government, business, charities and individuals can do to improve wellbeing and how we know that. Uh, and the data um, for all of those sectors is really key part of achieving the change. Um, please do check out some of the reports and outputs from Carnegie and the What Works Centre for Wellbeing. Put a link to them in the notes along with this episode and along with a number of other um, related pieces. All right, so on with the conversation. Um, we spoke in January of this year over Zoom and I started off by asking Jennifer how wellbeing is measured in the UK at the moment. So it's definitely a contested territory. Um, there are very live discussions um, in academia and public policy and the voluntary sector about what well-being means and how best we can improve it. Um, for for us at Carnegie, we are uh, we, so we see well-being as a um, 
holistic concept. So very much focused on the things that we need to build a good life now and for the future. So we're really interested in what are the building blocks of a good life and a good society. And in that, we have four domains, uh, social, economic, environmental and, and democratic. So you say you need all four of those in order to have a good society, personally to have a good life, but also for all of us collectively to have a, a good society and to live well together. Um, so what we know from that um, is that actually, you know, historically, there's been a bit of an over-reliance on the idea that the economic domain would somehow springboard the other domains that somehow a good solid economy um, would lead to a better society, a, you know, a, a decent environment and, and uh, a real underplay of the importance of the democratic element, um, both in our individual lives and, and for our institutions. So a lot of the work that we do at the moment is really focused on trying to find balance between the domains of well-being. Um, in terms of where the UK is, um, there has been a measurement of well-being, uh, so that multi-dimensional uh, measurement of well-being has been in place for almost 10 years now um, and it, again you know it looks at different aspects so it blends the subjective well-being that I'm sure you know Nancy can talk about in terms of a lot of the work that What Works Wellbeing have done um, and other objective domains and, and dynamics within there. Um, the problem for us is that that is held at arm's length of the policy process um, and what we're trying to do is to bring that into the process into the decision making process more so that you can see different ways of finding solutions to improve society and nancy do you have anything to add on like uh, how well-being is like measured at the moment and uh, your organization's perspective on that so our job as a center is to collate and bring together and synthesize what's already happening so we're playing back what's already happening rather than having a particular view of this is right and this is wrong way of thinking about well-being so the ons Think about uh, so the well-being measurement at the ONS is what is is really a way of um, I mean so they define it as well-being as how we're doing as individuals as communities and as the nation and how sustainable it is for the future. Okay, this is a way of thinking about completing the job of proper national accounts. So if you look at the people who created national accounts and GDP, they know that the economic bit was only part of the project. It was a way of understanding the economic, social and environmental accounts of a nation or the progress of a nation. And we've, we've focused largely on the economic, particularly around GDP, because it's a really helpful indicator. And on the health side, actually, we've focused quite um, on uh, life expectancy. Uh, and those have been a fantastic at achieving progress. But again, what's been forgotten and often gets forgotten is that you go, OK, I want to improve well-being of the nation. I need to focus on one thing or the other or that to make a difference. So you focus in on GDP, you focus in on life expectancy, focus on housing or whatever it is you think will make a difference. And you forget why you're doing it. Um, so for ONS, the how we're doing is a really basic way of thinking about it. But it's individuals collectively and nationally, um, and it covers all these different areas. At an individual level, which is kind of the bit we know quite well, it's about feeling good and functioning well, right? How are we doing now? How are we able to achieve what we want in life and meet our daily needs, those sorts of things? Um, uh, and that's kind of um, quite popularly understood. And then this idea of community well-being, so that how individuals, communities and, and nations are doing, how communities are doing, I think is really interesting and more complicated. 
And communities can be um, of place, right? We've got a big conversation around how places are doing and people who live in places are doing in the UK and of different types. And um, for me, a high wellbeing nation has more people thriving across the whole nation rather than individual bits. So this variation in wellbeing across the nation is really important. But communities can also be population groups within a nation or groups of interest like how particular professional groups are doing or sectors and occupations are doing how different um uh ethnicities are doing within the population and in different places so um but again how are we doing on a broad range of things and how sustainable is that for the future i think there are national understandings in different for uses in different contexts and as well as this individual and community one but basically it's bringing together these things that we already know in a way of thinking about it together and I'd much rather we were arguing about how we improved well-being um, and what metrics we were using to understand that than arguing about whether well-being is a thing at all. These definitions of well-being didn't drop from space either um, like uh, how, how are they decided upon or how how would how are certain aspects of what makes up well-being decided upon in, in, in this case? Is it just the community or the experts uh, decide this or are, are people asked what they think is important to them or how, how is that approached? So well-being as a framework, as a way of measuring pr- progress, essentially, uh, in a holistic way. Um, there are loads of these, like loads of nations have them. The OECD have one. I mean, the Social Sustainable Development Goals is a well-being framework, albeit with the most indicators I've ever seen, um, and 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 all, and not necessarily particularly useful ones decided by committee, right? Um, but what goes in those frameworks is important, right? And there's a couple of things. One is that you need the expert view, but how are those metrics chosen? And what is important being chosen is it does matter. So I would question sometimes what is the reason for some of those domains etc being included they're usually really sensible but like some indexes can be opaque in that but most of them aren't actually most of them are really really good the pub the uk well-being framework and the ones in scotland and wales and northern ireland are and many local ones in england um have got an element of public engagement and and when the ons did the UK wellbeing framework, it had one of the biggest consultation exercises in government, like huge. Uh, And I think it's pretty robust, actually. It stood up to a lot of things. I mean, some of the, uh, and but how you choose what goes in there and and what goes in when is a really interesting one. So often when you ask people what they're feeling or what they think is is important, they're often giving top of mind answers and they forget all these other things that matter. And we can be quite bad as humans and systematically fairly bad at predicting what will make us happy for example and so one of the things that the life satisfaction metric in the so one of the key things in the the uk wellbeing dashboard it also introduced a harmonized set so these measures already existed but it harmonized into four subjective well-being metrics which cover the four bases of of happiness i suppose if you want to include different words but it, it, it it's well subjective well-being so it's life satisfaction which is an evaluative measure of how we feel our life is now it includes purpose obviously um meaning and purpose is quite important and it has been argued that for years so eudaimonic well-being it measures that and it measures mood or positive and negative affect in two measures there's lots of different ways you can measure these contracts so happiness and anxiety as well and the life satisfaction satisfaction metric is particularly useful at helping also inform what goes into a framework because it helps pick up the things that not 
it's really quite democratic. It's not me saying this is what I think is good for you. It is, as an expert, it's saying this is what people say in their lived experience of life is how they feel when these things happen. And so I find it particularly useful and it's it's helpful metric. It's not the only metric in any way and the other ones are useful, but it's helpful for um, weighting the different aspects of a framework because it picks up economic, social and um, uh, and health aspects of life uh, in a way that other metrics don't do always it's not the only one but it's particularly useful one and that's off that's used as the basis of some of the measurement approaches in the green book guidance treasury green book guidance so so just to pick up that thread um it's definitely a, a necessary part of understanding well-being but most people would say it's not sufficient um and you know the, the things that people and so i agree you know what nancy's saying there people are not great at actually assessing what makes their what makes their life good in, in all cases and, and it helps to be able to probe that. Um, but we're also not good at thinking about the future. We're not good at assessing environmental risk. Um, how you ask the question of what matters to you changes um the the response that you get so the 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 whales um public engagement activity that i mentioned um because they were focused very much on future generations the top level that people said the most important thing that people said that came back from that consultation exercise was about the environment which way lower down the list than any of the work that we've done when you talk to people about their their lives or their community well-being, so their personal well-being or their community well-being. So how you frame the question really, really matters there. So it's important that you balance some of this with actually, you know, what, what we know about the importance of protecting the environment for future generations. And the other blind spot is around the strength of our institutions. Now, this is a particular blind spot um, in, um, in, in the UK where, you know, we, we have been privileged to have strong institutions for a very long time. If you look at some of the international well-being frameworks, um, the, the quality of institutions and the quality of, of governance and democracy um, are, are much more firmly in those frameworks because people understand what the risk is of corruption, what the risk is of poor government and failing institutions. Um, so one of the reasons we have the democratic well-being domain is to push that up the agenda um, and remind people people that you know actually we are complacent about that as a nation as a country and we need to assess our own democratic well-being as in in that mix of the social the economic the environmental and the democratic so that we're really making those rounded decisions that will improve people's lives so but how do how do these how does it actually get measured then like you might imagine you know measuring public parks is like uh, the number of public parks like closest people that's like oh you go check maps or whatever um but then the, the subject measures is like another technique where you have to go out and kind of get surveys or talk to people or whatever um so uh, it's possible you give some examples of all the different ways in which these aspects of well-being are measured or how this data is collected i might jump in because i can do on the subjective side of it particularly and how it's because it's actually a massive ecosystem of data around this that's been created um actually has existed for a long time and it's it's just re- been um refined and improved since 2010-11 and actually continues to be as well um so uh question of what how have they collected so firstly um you'll see in a number of places like new zealand and scotland and Northern Ireland, you you bring together the data that you already have about the things that matter in one place and so you can see the ons 
doing this with the dashboards and stuff like that. So the well subjective well-being data is in the COVID dashboard, for example. I would argue that you need the ONS to be using the overall well-being framework as the front page and then having the economic and the health within that um, more cohesively, where it's focusing, it is a little bit too fragmented at the moment, I would say. But it's, it, the data is there. It's really, really high quality. And actually, some of the problem isn't necessarily the n- amount of data. It's about almost also about um, communicating that data, access to that data, use of that data. And so that's what I've been focused on quite a lot. But the subjective well-being measures, so the, the sort of the happiness, life satisfaction, etc., are connect, collected in a massive range of forms. So they are the main national statistics on subjective well-being are collected through the annual population survey, which is a household based survey. And that's important for one of my future things that ONS are trying to tackle at the moment. So uh, it asks people regularly. It's also uh, and you can get quarterly, really quite robust data um, for the last 10 years. It's pretty awesome. It's the biggest data set in this field in the world um, and it meant we could do the first ever population level analysis of what drives feeling of sense of purpose a sense of worthwhile which no one's ever been able to do and it's amazing you can get that sense of things that make a bigger or smaller difference on well-being um, so the things that make a really big difference on well-being are um, being in a job and actually that's one of the really important ones um, uh, being in a job being employed um, your health your social connections, all and basic need, all really matter. And then there's other things that matter at the margins that really help. So um, fun, <laughs> so music, pleasure, leisure, all these sorts of things, engagement with green space, noise pollution, sound pollution, these sorts of things. So we can get a sense of the relative effect size of that. And you can use that in policymaking and evaluate and do research. So those are the sorts of ways it's used. And so, for example, they can be used in health and joint strategic needs assessments of an area and to inform health and well-being strategies for a local area in the in England. And, and, and the general, no doubt, gives some really great examples for Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, because that's what her book does. That's a jumping off point, isn't it? Um, oh, I think, I mean, the, the applications of it, I agree. It's, you know, it's a huge world and it's so exciting when you begin to see these things come into play in policy discussions and debates when people are able to um, play with the evidence. You know, well, what does this mean? You know, um, I think one of the one of the hardest shifts that well-being forces you to make is a shift into prevention. And that's really hard at the moment because we're dealing with with COVID, we're dealing with the pandemic, we're dealing with an incredibly um, acute crisis. But underneath all of that are inequalities and, and difficulties that actually need much more upfront investment to stop people slipping into really negative cycles of, of life experience. Um, but that prevention is so hard to argue for in public policy. It's really hard to shift the money. And actually, while I love the, you know, the the Scottish experience, the, the Welsh experience, the Northern Irish experience of using wellbeing, they struggle to make that shift into prevention. And I think what we're trying to do is find ways of using well-being as, uh, and I'll say common currency, though I do have a slight concern about monetizing everything, as, as Nancy well knows, um, but, but trying to find that way of saying, well, actually, if you put one pound into this, you know, if you put one pound into early years, you're going to get, you know, so much well-being across the life course back for your population Um, and that's really hard now we have a a way um, historically we have ways of making uh, 
investment cases within the economic domain. And what we're now trying to do is making investment cases that jump out of the economic domain into the social domain, into the environmental domain, and hopefully into the democratic domain. And say we can see the benefits, the future well-being benefits of doing this if we're able to make that adjustment. Um, So obviously nobody really expected it in in, in the budgets recently with, with COVID, but we are really hopeful as things develop that more of those budgets will be well-being focused and that we'll see a greater focus in those on tackling inequalities between people and places and prevention moving upstream to stop harm before it becomes really entrenched in people's lives. As as Nancy says, you know, some of the well-being data tells us just how hard it is for people to have a good life if they experience some of these difficulties around unemployment, around loneliness, around health problems and, and chronic conditions. So we need to be much smarter about how we use that information to change what we invest in. So you're kind of talking about this at the national level and um, all of this, like, so data is created, it's measured, it's um, measuring different aspects of well-being. You kind of, it seems to be so far that it's all being fed into the big ginormous data intermediary that is the uh, Office of National Statistics. Like, is, is there a way to kind of break that up should that always be at the national level like could that loop be much smaller say like um you know like there used to be all these different definitions of uh, of a mile um yeah could there be different definitions of uh well-being so you go to cornwall and they measure different things and they care about different things and they say well it's our well-being versus like uh, say up in orkney if you want to go to the other side of the country and they they might measure things differently and use that data differently um or should it kind of be kept at this singular definition at the national level it's really interesting so you can get data on like standardized data on subjective well-being and it all of the drivers of well-being some of them could be way better so job quality measures for example could be way better you can get that for every local authority in a consistent way across the uk what you do with that data and what else you add to it and what else you can do with it really can vary and that's exciting so so when you asked me about the future so there's a a couple of things one is that that access to the data and then be able to engage in and and, and use it and um understand it is really important i think is a basic democratic aspect actually so i think we should be better at doing that and that could be done locally really really well actually Um, i think we could get better local data too so there is a real challenge around some of the subjective well-being data i mean it's amazing it's like way better than anybody else's but the local trying to use it at a local level we're actually often thinking about neighborhoods or wards right is 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 tricky so like trying to get the numbers of loneliness or whatever in practical way at local level is quite hard so that's where i think it would usefully go and and also looking at the other proxies that you have and the data that you already collect locally and building that picture, I think, gives a much greater sense of ownership and, and practical responsive use. Um, so I, I would say that one. But I also would say that the national dashboard could should be updated more often. Jen's pointed out that it got paused and different bits got prioritised. But actually, most of the data is there. Yes, it's a communication problem rather than a data availability problem. Um, I think that, you know, interesting, uh, because the, the question that that sparks for me is what is local? Um, so, you know, the description we can get, um, 
official statistics at local authority level can get administrative data at local authority level that they can process. But for most people, local is a much smaller geographic unit. And that's where it's incredibly difficult to get that kind of information. So most of what we see at a very local level, and when we've done this for um, on the basis of towns, um, you can get information about the economy. You can get some social, particularly health information. As Nancy mentioned, fingertips, the, the, the public health information is really, really good. You can get some of that driven right down. Um, the environmental is not brilliant. You know, the democratic is non-existent. You know, some of the other social ones are actually not, not great. So you can get administrative data on education, for example, but you can't necessarily get, you know, the administrative data that you might want about the quality of children's lives. And children actually are a massive gap in understanding well being well-being of, of children that data needs to be developed and there are projects ongoing to further develop that that data um but but the issue about you know actually trying to get this information into the hands of local people so that they can find out what to prioritize in terms of improving their local neighborhoods is, is a really live conversation and actually part of the leveling up agenda as well so um so really keen to see developments in that that's where i think you start getting into really interesting conversations about well if we can't get that data to Top down, you know, if we can't produce really localized data from population surveys, are there ways of getting it bottom up through user-generated forum, you know, that, that are actually robust enough, reliable enough in a statistical sense that you can then compare them to the official statistics? And I don't think we're there yet. You know, I mean, local authorities sometimes have citizen panels and whatever, but there are always so many caveats about it. But it's not beyond the wish of people to come up with a mechanism for developing very localised data that is robust enough to compare to official statistics. And that, that's where I hope we're going in the future, but we're not there yet. Yeah, there's just two things I wanted just to say. So um, one was on uh, children, young people status so under 18s. The subjective wellbeing data that we have is very good, but it's small and it's because it's collected by the Children's Society, which is a charity, and they fund that collection of data, but it does provide our national statistics. Um, if our well-being is to be sustainable over the future, that matters about how our young people are doing because they are the future well-being of the nation. And uh, we need to get better at collecting children and young people's well-being data. And ideally, I think it could be collected in schools every term from key stage three upwards and there is a pilot currently in greater manchester to do that and actually lots of schools do collect it it's a very established process it's not the only measure you would use certainly not but it is data i think that we need and it's done in a number of other countries it's totally possible the other one is on local and you asked about what does um would different places have different priorities for well-being? And yes, they absolutely would. So um, Shetland, you mentioned, and I picked that up because that they've got a completely different well-being profile to everywhere else. But there are other areas as well. So pockets of East London, pockets of Oxfordshire, pockets of, I mean, what, what means to live well will vary on different circumstances because places are different, right? People of different ages are there, different geographies. Like, what this means to live well in a different place can tell us some really interesting things. Jen always talks about finding places that are like you, um, but you didn't expect to be like you or who should be like you, but aren't. And what does that tell you about what you could do in your place um, about well-being? If I describe that effectively, Jen. 
Yeah, we talk about the unusual suspects and the usual suspects, and it's um, some of the work that, that we did with local places under our towns programme was about connecting places that, that had um, sort of similar um, backgrounds and approaches, but were doing very different things um, and trying to figure out exactly what was going on with that. But the most important thing, and going back to that local and bringing it to, to real life, the most important part of that programme was where they were telling their story to a different community, and they had to go and work out what the story of their place was, some of which they did through data and some of which they did through conversations and storytelling. Um, And it's just a really interesting way into a conversation about, you know, what is my place and what does it mean to me and what do we need to do to improve it? collectively um so i find it really interesting that actually telling that story to an, another community um was a really helpful way for them to think about social change and the power that they actually did have in order to improve their communities now you know of course not not every community has the assets that it needs in order to improve from within you know and, and that's part of the leveling up agenda we need to make sure that places get that support um but what they want to invest in needs to be a local decision and um, we can provide the evidence and all of the support but it has to be part of a really localized conversation about what matters here and now and given that we're almost at the time um very quick actual question would be uh, what would be one thing you'd like to see prioritized uh, with data for well-being in the uk um, one last thing, though, which isn't a government ask, which is um, there are the data is available. It's there uh, and there are cool things that you can do with it. And people did do from time to time. But the more we play with engage and make this accessible, the better. So uh, there were some great little um, uh, little apps that were developed about how you can look at different sub different occupations as and the well-being of different occupations or graduate outcome data for different professions on their well-being so it ways of in, uh, engaging with this data in different ways so commuting i think there was a great one on commuting and well-being as well so picking your commute that make you happiest but basically if we can that's what my big ask would be in terms of the the new techniques there was really great variation though in terms of people using different data sources to understand this including social media and stuff like that i'm going to go for for three as well i think i mentioned two of them but then i'll make my uh, my third one a new one um so so localize it and get it as local as possible um and, and find new ways of doing that um plug the population gaps so that's particularly um we've mentioned children and young people homeless people also don't appear in most statistics um and, and other social groups that where the numbers are very small where we need to get better information so um focus on population gaps for my third one um and the most important one is to communicate the data um, so we have this wealth of data uh, geeks like nancy and i play around with it all the time and we love it uh, but we need to get better at telling that story to the public about actually what it means to have a good life uh, to decision makers about how they can build better services for people to improve well-being and how we can all really move forward collectively uh, in, in a positive way particularly when we go through the recovery phase of covid we've got some big choices that we need to make about where we're going to invest in to improve our well-being I like it. Nice wrap up. Um, well, thank you very much for joining the podcast. And uh, yeah, hopefully we have you back before too long. Thank you. Lovely to see you both. Okay, thank then. you. Always a pleasure. Take care. Right. Thank you. Bye.